The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Three men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 46 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Still surprised that Evil Ernie hasn't had an Evil Knievel mashup variant cover, I'm Adam, and joining me this episode are two very special guests who have magically jumped from the very pages of Wizard and onto the mic to reveal the secrets of our favorite guide to comics. First up, we have a man whose journey with Wizard was split across literal centuries as he joined the magazine to talk toys every month with issue two in 1991, only to find himself as the magazine's longest running editor by his journey's end in the mid-2000s. It's our pleasure to welcome to the show brian cunningham hey good to be here guys thanks for having me appreciate it yeah glad to have you on uh, an official full-fledged episode Uh, your interview was wonderful and got to have you back for the 30th and now we'll get into all the details next up is the man who brian handed the reins of the toying around column to in 1993 a section that was being written monthly while this gentleman was also running a comic book store that sold all the books and collectibles that wizard promoted we're excited to welcome to the podcast sean ani thanks for having me on a regular episode can't wait to jump into the mid 90s again (laughs) a wonderful time to revisit (laughs) yes Now, this Wizards team-up is not coincidental. The purpose of our discussion tonight is to get both an editorial perspective on this particular issue and what it took to put it together, but also to see the results of the coverage within on the direct market retail business. Was Wizard truly the arbiter of comic book taste and trends in 1995? Now, the truth can be told. Or in lieu of the truth, some hazy, mostly accurate memories of this moment in time. (laughs) We'll do our best, right, guys? Uh, Yeah, let's get into it. (laughs) I've been racking my brain since you sent the notes, trying to remember everything you bring up in the (laughs) notes. Speaking of notes, it should be noted that this issue marks the return of Garib's from the top letter after editor-in-chief Pat McCallum had been providing an editorial piece during the prior four months. In other Wizard Bullpen news, we have a report that the beloved Dan Riley got married and many members of the staff attended. Were you there for that, Brian? Uh, I didn't go to the wedding, but I I certainly went to the bachelor party, which... uh... Which I'd rather not talk about. I think I I blanked out most of the memories of that, but the, the one that I cannot get rid of is seeing more of Dan than I ever wanted to. And it was ridiculous. It, it was absolutely... Uh. The memories, uh, I just, I feel like I have to take a shower just thinking about it. Everyone had a great time, but it was basically what happens when a bunch of geeks get together for a traditional bachelor party, which some things should just stay 
unspoken. Yes. Well, we could talk about this next piece, though, because we hear that the wizard editorial staff of Pat McCallum, Mark Wachowski, Andrew Carden, and yes, one Brian Cunningham, got their butts kicked in bowling by the Inquest team of Mike Fasolo, Robin Ramos, Matthew Milliken, and the ringer, Doug Goldstein, who apparently won many bowling trophies in high school. Brian, have your bowling skills improved in the decades that have followed? Oh, God, no. That actually might have been the last time, actually, I, I went bowling. <laughs> For for our team, Andrew Carden was a was a very good bowler, and unfortunately, he was saddled with the rest of us, <laughs> who were not very good bowlers at all. Mike Searle had, uh, I, I think, had eaten something that day, and, and it was very suspicious. It was, uh, <laughs> I, in fact, I think we I think we need a, a recall of this. Uh, <laughs> this. It's time for a rematch. Yeah, Brian's I think, ready I to think set we it really up. Need this. It was a shellacking. It was embarrassing. Well, was... what's interesting is we get lots of reports of it's whether it's bowling or miniature golf or whatever. There was always some sort of competition going on between the different bullpens. Yeah, it was it was either Wizard and Inquest, Wizard and Toy Fair. And, and you know, that kind of environment was fostered by Pat, who found joy in the rivalries. And I think it also helped the sister publications because I think they always had a kind of a chip on their shoulder as the more niche magazine, but it was all in good fun. It was a good time. You know, it was, it was a very tight knit office. Uh, It was a fun relationship that endured for many years while these magazines existed. All right. Well, Jim McLaughlin was having a great time over in the magic words column. So it's time that we open up Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. Doug Sutherland and Andy Ryder of Salt Lake City, Utah. Yes, it took two of them to write this letter in. They ask, Dear Wizard, now that Todd Toys has done a medieval spot action figure, are we going to see Safari spawn, Malibu spawn, or Astronaut spawn? And Jim's response, I doubt it. But personally, I'd like to see a bridal spawn, beach blanket summer fun spawn, and of course, spawn with the Kung Fu grip. So the question I have for you, Sean and Brian, as our resident toy experts, what is the most ridiculous variant costume for a popular comic book character action figure line in your experience? What just immediately jumps out at you? How long is this episode? I would say you could take any of the mission masters from the Batman animated series, throw them in a bag and every single one you would pull out would be considered a winner. But I think the one that always sticks out in my mind is slalom racer, Batman. (laughs) Wow. Wow. That was the new Batman adventures. It was a mission masters figure. He was in a white suit and came with bright orange skis and ski poles because, you know, he is a dark Avenger of the night. So of course he's going to use the brightest colored skis and poles he can find. (laughs) But yeah, that that's one that really, I was like, okay, we, we have officially jumped the shark, shot the shark, jumped back over the shark and we're done. Well, I'm, sh- I'm sure that Ketter did all the research they had to do to realize, oh, well, there was once a rainbow costume that Batman wore in the Silver Age. It's an homage. <laughs> sure. <laughs> 
I can't no. top any of that. No, that, that is fantastic. Well, what's crazy to me is that they make fun of all these different types of spawn figures that potentially could have happened. But I recall in the late 90s, a line of Spider-Man toys that was, it was basically Mego sized I think a little bit smaller, but they were Spider-Man goes fishing. Spider-Man plays soccer. I actually bought, my friend was, you know, big into, you know, international, the football. And so I got him the soccer Spider-Man, you know, and sent it over to him. So it's just kind of crazy to me. Like they actually did take it that far eventually with Toy Biz. New adventures for Spidey. The 90s overall just got so weird for toys because we started seeing, you know, G.I. Joe was trying to extend its life so far and we got crazier and crazier with G.I. Joe. You know, the eco-warrior G.I. Joes. I mean, come on. One of my favorite things about Kenner was you always knew a Kenner toy line was about to end when a glow-in-the-dark figure was released. (laughs) So the second you saw a glow-in-the-dark figure, you're like, oh no, this toy line's ending. Unfortunately, Swamp Thing had a glow-in-the-dark figure in the very first wave, so we knew it was doomed. (laughs) But the the list of just horrible variant action figures goes on and on. And that the whole reason is because molds cost so much to make. So of course these toy companies want to get as much as they can out of a mold, but there is a point where you're just like, I think you've made your money back. Please stop torturing us. (laughs) Now the next letter here, this is a letter that has stuck with me since I first grabbed this issue off the shelf as a kid. Here's what they say. Dear wizard, I wanted to drop you a line and let you know that I love the casting call department that you've been running. But I have to say that at issue number 42, when you cast John Cusack in the role of Peter Parker for a Spider-Man movie, you were off base. You need a more agile actor. I think you need to turn your heads to the World Wrestling Federation and look at Shawn Michaels. If he'd cut his hair, he'd be perfect. He does flips and moves around the ring very well. He has the upper body build and calves just like Spider-Man. And he's used to wearing tights. <laughs> Earl Woodruff, <laughs> Ufala, Oklahoma. And so Jim's response here, he has calves just like Spider-Man? Who notices Spider-Man's calves? Jeez, looks like I've been missing out on the fight points of comics for quite a while now and it looks like the wrestling people are getting even weirder someone alert mad dog bashan <laughs> a reference that pat mccallum would surely get and then there's actually a picture that has been inserted into the column of spider-man backwards and upside down saying you don't know what you're missing and the word balloon is coming from his calves <laughs> But I, I could never not look at Shawn Michaels' calves after that. I was just like, that Spider-Man's calves. Yeah, it's all about the calves, man. <laughs> I have to say, I never once sat around going, who has Spider-Man's calves? Never crossed my mind. And clearly, I've been missing out on all the guesses to, as to who could play Spider-Man. Every casting call we did beyond this letter, we always took the calves into account. (laughs) All right. Well, next up here, uh, it's time that we check the headlines with wizard news. So Brian, were you still editing the wizard news section at this point? I did a pass, but I was not editing wizard news at this point in time, entertainment retailing, which was a, a trade magazine that we had produced. That magazine was discontinued and we folded over the team that did that magazine into the other magazines. And this is when Joe Yanarella, who was the editor of Entertainment Retailing, jumped over to Wizard Proper. You know, Joe comes from a journalism background. He, he's worked for newspapers and entertainment magazines. I mean, he's done actual journalism as opposed to me, who I was an editor of my 
college newspaper. And I mean, certainly had no hardcore training. So Joe took over the Wizard News section. And this Marvel and Heroes World thing must have come in very late in the game while we were putting this magazine together because it wasn't part of our original outline. Uh, and actually wasn't even part of the original document for Wizard News. So You're this, saying you have that with you? I have all of this stuff, except wow. I, I don't have this actual story, but this uh-huh. story has Joe Yanarella written all over it because the way the way he formatted this, I mean, he, he liked doing things in, in a very succinct way so that there was not only clarity, but also in, a, in an entertaining format. So he, he was very much into you know winners and losers, things like that to kind of give the full context of this massive tidal wave that had just hit the business at this point. So let's get into this here because over the last three issues that we've been covering, Wizard has been reporting on rumors and then providing the confirmation that Marvel Comics was buying the distribution company Heroes World. And Todd McFarlane even declared war, like literal war against Marvel in his ego column last issue. They're pitting themselves against the rest of the industry, da da da. So Wizard, like you said here, with Joe, he's saying who are going to be the winners in this situation, who are going to be the losers. You know, there's this new comics landscape that is going to emerge. And so, Sean, we have you as an actual retailer here. How did the Marvel decision to distribute their comics exclusively through Heroes World affect your business? It was a frightening time because... At that time, most of us worked with just one distributor for the comics. Now, you know, we would have a distributor for role-playing games and other product lines. But for comics, you would either choose typically Capital City, Diamond Comics, or Heroes World. So once you're with one company, that simplifies everything because your shipping charges are across all of your product lines. And because it's the first pound of a box that costs you the most. And then, it, you know, there's an incremental for every pound. So you want as few first pounds as possible. So we get this information that Marvel's bought Heroes World. So, all right, great. Now we were getting, we were exclusive with Capital City. So once a week, a Capital City semi came by my store, dropped off all my product. All right. So now I was going to have the capital city semi coming plus i had the heroes world freight coming and the problem with heroes world was they really only had one location for shipping so because of my distance my price went up quite a bit this also dropped my discount with capital city because i lost volume on how much i was ordering so from the moment that this was announced, all my expenses went up. And luckily I had enough other product lines that I could survive. But people have to realize that with comics, it's a very thin margin. If you're off by even a couple copies that you order too many copies of something, that's going to start to impact your bottom line. Because yes, we may get 50% off on the cover price, but let's say you ordered six copies and you only sold three, basically you've just negated yourself. So it's not a high margin business. And unfortunately, this move quickly started to cause stores to close. Well, then you had Diamond step in and Diamond, you know, and Capital went to war over who they could get exclusively and Diamond outbid them on DC and Image. So that caused Capital City to close. So then I had to change my distribution to Diamond. At that point, Marvel was starting to falter. So every day we woke up and went, okay, what's today's disaster going to be? There, There was something changing every single day and it was just a nightmare and you know you're you're watching your expenses grow constantly it it took years for it to settle back down years 
And Brian, do you remember hearing any rumblings behind the scenes as you're starting to, you know, talk to these various, uh, you know, people who were involved in creating the comics? Did they have concerns? Once Marvel purchased Heroes World, which at that point in time, I mean, I think they were just like a New Jersey based store, if I recall, because I know I, I went to one, but I think they were pretty small. And then suddenly now they are the exclusive distributor for Marvel, the largest North American comic book publisher. I don't think they were ready for it. And, uh, you know, the consequences of this was massive. This caused the, the collapse of the business for a little bit. And people were rushing towards security, you know, so like DC's response to that was to go exclusive for Diamond, which that contract still lasted up until last year when DC cut ties with Diamond finally. Yeah, that's so, I mean, Diamond benefited. Cap City went under. Cap City was a huge and well-liked distributor. Uh, it just was a, a total disruption of the business at that point. And, and I'm looking at it from the cheap seat. I don't pretend to understand all of what happened, but I do remember the consequences were catastrophic. Tons of books were canceled. I think this point in time was when all of the indie publishers, they were also running to security. Bone went to Image. Strangers in Paradise went to Image with Jim Lee's Homage Comics. So many small indie publishers felt that they were going to get rubbed out. So they they kind of attached themselves with a known quantity just to survive. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, Sean, you're mentioning, you know, again, your costs are going up and everything else. I'm wondering if this next item had any impact in helping to uh, balance that out, because as if Marvel didn't already own enough businesses. I mean, this is just in a long line of purchases they had been making over the previous year. It's reported now the House of Ideas is purchasing Skybox Trading Card Company after having just purchased Fleer a year earlier. So it's unsure again for DC because their card sets were exclusively being produced through Skybox, which now it's going to be owned by the competition. But Sean, how big a part of your income was the trading card business? I was doing a crazy business in cards and we actually had a portion of one of our storerooms dedicated to just card sorting. And so, you know, we, we'd get the newest case in, we'd start immediately cracking them and, you know, sorting them into sets because yeah, some customers love to buy packs. A lot of customers just like to go, oh, please hand me the full set. I don't want to do the work. Employees that I'm still friends with from that time occasionally will go, you know, my thumbs have never been the same. <laughs> because we just sat there for hours sorting cards. And then, of course, magic was coming along. So we were sorting like Batman trading cards and the latest magic expansion at the same time. But it, it became a huge part of the business. But then when it died off, it died off like overnight. It was just like everyone got bored with trading cards at the exact same time. Yeah, I mean, if if uh, I remember that happening to me at this time, uh, in fact, in this issue, because they were promoting Marvel Metal cards with four-page ads, and I, I remember I got burned out on Marvel Metal cards. There were like the variant sets and all this stuff, and I'm just like, I'll never be able to buy them all. But I have to ask you, Brian, with these huge ads that Fleer is buying, and even they they were often giving you the Fleer flare images from cards to use for different issues like last issue was a captain america you know trading card image that was put up there was marvel like the biggest buyer of ads for wizard to your knowledge at this point well to be clear the ads were purchased by fleer don't mistake that they were bought by marvel okay um because at this point in time uh you'll notice there's a bit of a stretch 
of DC characters on our covers. And anytime we wanted to put a Marvel character on our cover, it was a Fleer flare image. And the reason for that was because the relationship between Wizard and Marvel was extremely strained. Think, what did you, you guys know, do? <laughs> I, 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 if I can recall back to that point in time, it might've been the pot shots at the spider clone. I, yep. I, I don't recall exactly, but I, th- I think that was kind of what was happening at that point. So Bill Jemis at the time, before he became Marvel publisher, he was in charge of Fleer and Bill had a decent relationship with Garib. And that was how we got to put Marvel characters on our covers. We went through Fleer. Marvel publishing had no domain over over Fleer. So Bill was was happy to provide us with those images. In fact, it was Bill Jemis and Dan Buckley. They were both, uh, Dan, I think was working under Bill at that point in time at Fleer. And both of them were were great to work with. And they provided us with uh, as much Fleer art as we wanted. (laughs) That is fascinating. Wow. See, this is what we came here for, folks. Man. Now, moving on, uh, it's reported that John Byrne is now going to be writing and drawing Wonder Woman at DC Comics with issue number 101, where he is planning to employ a similar method he used on She-Hulk, where he will feature, quote, lame villains that other editors don't plan on using in other books as part of his stories. So I'm very curious, you know, Brian, you're a big DC fan and obviously went on to work for them. And Sean, I'm sure you had to read the product. What do you guys recall about Wonder Woman under John Byrne? Not his best work. That's what I hear. It wasn't a great seller for us. That was for sure. Yeah, I I picked up one back issue, you know, years ago, because I remember people talking about it. I was like, yeah, this is very convoluted. I don't know what's going on here. Like, you know, and I I read the first issue today just to be like, well, how did it start off? But it's like, he just sets her up in a new city to operate out of and all this stuff. I was like, okay, so this is definitely just a whole new world that he's trying to incorporate. Well, despite all of that, it didn't deter Wonder Woman's number one fan at that point in time, which was Mark Wachowski. Mark was a stalwart. Wonder Woman fan and nothing would dissuade him of that. Uh, He was a huge, huge fan of that book. In fact, in a later issue that Byrne did, he drew in Mark as a character. Wow. uh, Rabbi Wilkowski. Which which was uh, which was great. I know it was a it was a real thrill for Mark to do that. To, that is uh, fantastic. We have to keep an eye out that. for that one. <laughs> now here's one that none of the Wizard staff I would think would have hoped to have been drawn into. Lightning Comics was making their mark by producing the first nude variant cover for Helena number one, and now they say they have plans to continue the gimmick. It's been so popular with a Helena holiday special and many more, possibly a model kit with a nude assembly option. So Sean, what was your take as a retailer on selling these mature titles? Like, were they making you money? Did the customers have to special order them and get them in a black bag? Like what was going on? The vast majority of the the mature titles were special orders. And there was a few like Faust by Tim Vigil and David Quinn. We would actually carry on the rack, but, you know, bagged and boarded, you know, so that you couldn't look through them. But typically it, it, it was never a huge part of our business i think part of the problem was that you couldn't really promote them so people didn't know about them you know so it was kind of a catch-22 situation but every once in a while one would catch on and it was usually more of a violence aspect that 
people were brought into it by not you know so much the nudity but yeah i mean just like any other gimmick throughout the 90s in comics it had its time period it faded away faster than most of the other gimmicks did though i remember at this point in time it wasn't too far removed from the mike diana obscenity laws and and you know all that stuff i mean did that were you at all were you concerned at all about the police coming in and raiding you for obscene content so here here was what sean did to uh (laughs) to curtail that i uh went and got ordained literally wow Through the Universal Life Church, I got ordained. So being a small town, we weren't so much concerned about the police. The problem we had was that every time a new minister moved into town, we were one of their first stops. And so they would come in the store and they would look around. And we got to a point where we knew the second they walked through the door that they were a minister. And so they, you know, they would check all the racks and make sure that, you know, we weren't polluting the youth of Kirksville. So I, I was, oh, yes, I, I understand you as a minister myself. And it would just kill anything. <laughs> wow. And yes, I, and yes, I have performed a wedding. Wow. This is great stuff. My goodness. <laughs> the obscenity laws were concerned, but I luckily also another advantage while you had the aspect of being a small town and, you know, you would think, oh, the, the, that would be an issue. I also went to high school with most of the cops. <laughs> And so if there ever was a problem, if I called them up, I would have five cop cars outside immediately if I ever had trouble because they all knew me. Luckily, I was somewhat protected, but yeah, we always tried to be careful. We did always card. My favorite story was the kid who stood right outside of our bay window asking adults coming in if they would go in and buy him Faust. (laughs) We sat right next to the window so we could hear everything that was said outside the window. And so this one guy walks in and he goes, uh, yeah, do you have a book called Faust? I was like, I sure do. And I would sell it to you if it was for you. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was always a tricky situation, but we tried to be very, very careful. Yeah. Speaking of Faust real quick, you know, for those who don't recall, David Quinn was actually a columnist in Wizard in the early days, uh, you know, for a couple months there. He, he had his piece that I could never decipher. What he was writing in there was just so beyond me. I'm like, I don't know what you're saying. It's all like weird philosophical stuff. And so I actually pulled up an issue of Faust just to finally look at it because I, I grabbed the VHS copy of the movie that uh, was made because it was being reported, you know, in the, the cut and print section. But then I went and looked at the comic. And yeah, and I was just like, okay, yeah, two pages in, I'm not reading any more of this. Like this, this is not for me, 100. percent They toned it down a little bit in the movie, luckily. But man, I, I'm actually good friends with David, and David's writing can at times be a little thick. <laughs> <laughs> he knows what he's saying. <laughs> he's exactly. got a point of view. Yeah. But if you if you ever meet him, he is one of the nicest people on the face of the per- oh, earth. Sure, he, he's sure. a wonderful guy. Always the quiet ones. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) Now, finally, for Wizard News, this issue marks Wizard's first official announcement of being part of cyberspace with a full page ad declaring that the magazine now has a presence on America Online. Here's what they say. Yeah, we've been following this computer online stuff for quite a while now. You know, trying to figure out if we should put Wizard Online or not. So we figured, what the hell? And took the plunge. Starting this May, you'll be able to read Wizard via America Online. That's right. We're officially in cyberspace space scary thought eh you'll get all that groovy stuff you expect out of wizard plus a whole bunch of stuff you've never seen before what exactly beats the hell out of us but trust us it'll blow doors off anything else you've seen in cyberspace promise (laughs) oh wizard oh that's the that's the best vamping we could do (laughs) 
And beyond this point, even, you know, 15 years later, still working on it. Still trying to figure that out. Well, um, you know, I, I think the result of this probably was what uh, brought Buddy Scalera on board. Once I think we were pretty entrenched with AOL, mm-hmm. you know, once we had someone in house that was a little more dedicated to that area, we did a lot more stuff with that. Go back and check out the Wizard Files interview with Buddy Scalera. He talks about all the training he did directly with the people in charge of America Online. I mean, he was getting all the details on how this stuff play out and running you know all the the different rooms that people would uh, participate in on america online and did a lot of chat rooms and things like that you know talking with fans and, and whatnot it was fun sean for you were you stay connected to the online world of comics at all were you in the news groups or anything I actually got on the internet for the first time in 1986 Woo. and yeah i i was a very early adopter. And so, yeah, I was doing news groups and, you know, I, I even tried running very, very simple auctions via Usenet groups, which was, this was pre eBay. Yeah. And, oh, you want to talk about a nightmare. I was so happy when eBay showed up. (laughs) Because every night I had to publish, okay, here are today's bids, but it, it was a wild west at the time. And I, I can actually remember sitting down once and going, you know, if somebody ever figures out a way to put pictures with each of these items, this will be huge. And then I went back to watching television probably, but <laughs> <laughs> I knew I wasn't going to figure out how to do it. It was also nice considering it was the mid eighties and into the early nineties, you were able to finally connect with people that shared your interests all over the world. And that was amazing, you know, and that's how, you know, the AOL chat rooms came about and, you know, news groups and Usenet and everything else. So it it was a great time. And of course, now we have Twitter, which is just mainly people, you know, calling each other stupid, but, (laughs) you know, there was something about those early days that was really fun and exciting. Well, to our geeks and listeners on Twitter, know that we we give you this uh, moniker out of love, and we always uh, look forward to hearing the nice things you have to say to us. All right. Well, with that, I think it's time we get into the meat of this issue. We're going to check out our table of contents. So issue 46 here with a June 1995 cover date features a very nice Tom Grummet cover of Batman, Robin, and Azrael in some action poses. Although when you kind of look at it, it feels like a random decision since there really wasn't any major news in the Bat books at this point outside of like a short-lived redesign of the Bat suit. You know, like in the previous years, there have been all these huge crossovers and big changes. And now it's just kind of, you know, back to status quo. Even like looking at the big book of covers didn't give us a whole lot of insight. But Brian, do you have any idea why the, the Gotham gang here was given the spotlight? Any Anything you remember about this cover or Tom Grummet's involvement with the magazine? Well, I think the relationship with Marvel probably probably influenced our decision making here. I mean, if you notice, the next few issues are mostly DC in scope. In, in this case, I think we had stopped doing gatefolds for a, a few issues. So, I mean, we were big fans of Tom Grummet, and Tom was a real up and comer that did a few covers at that period for us. Yeah, he, he'd done a, a cover that didn't get printed. It was intended for issue thirty. Eight, I believe. And that was going to go, but then it got bumped because we learned late in the process that Wolverine was going to stick his claws through Sabretooth's skull. So that took over uh, <laughs> for that issue. And 
you know, Batman is always a character that has constant interest. And the, the books at that point in time were, were really solid. And Tom was uh, was drawing Robin at the time. I mean, I think he, he was doing two books a month, which is staggering, really, considering, I mean, does anyone do two books a month nowadays? <laughs> the, the one thing I recall specifically when we got this cover art in, we got the actual board in from Federal Express from Tom. It had a a, a very pungent tobacco smell. Like Tom, at least at that time, he had to have been a really decent smoker because the the whole thing on the inside of that box just smelled like a tobacco farm. Probably what an alley in Gotham smells like, you know? (laughs) There were only two artists that we work with Whenever they sent in original art, you you had that tobacco scent, which was Tom Grummet and Tom Palmer, uh, <laughs> Tom Palmer Senior. Yeah. Uh, both both of them, uh, I think, were were smokers at that point in time. But I don't know why that memory just sticks in my brain. But uh, feels like this should have been a scratch and sniff cover. Then you know, <laughs> you put the tobacco because yeah, because like you were saying, Tom actually does in the next issue. He does a Superman cover. So yeah, so it would have been the same deal. That's awesome. The sensorial experience that you could get now with these behind the scenes details, folks. Just light up a cigarette while you read this issue. No, we're just kidding. All right, now in the shadow of the bat is an interview with the writers of the Batman book at this time, which included Alan Grant, Doug Mensch, Chuck Dixon, and of course, editor Denny O'Neill is there. Make sure it's all being taken care of. This article contains the first instance, I think, for many young fans of, quote, Bruce Wayne is actually a mask that Batman puts on, rather than Batman being a mask that Bruce Wayne puts on. Now, this is according to Alan Grant, and I, I don't recall ever thinking that or considering that, you know, as a kid until I read this article and be like, whoa. Oh, that's so deep. Yeah, of course, that's you know, very, very similar to what uh, you know, movies and other things have kind of indicated to us over the years. But Chuck Dixon adds his take. He says, quote, Clark Kent was Superman's way of belonging to a family. Bruce, on the other hand, keeps to himself. He doesn't want anybody knowing his secrets. He doesn't want to belong. Batman hasn't put the effort into developing Bruce Wayne's personality that he should. So I'm curious, where do you guys fall just in your reading and fandom over the years in this line of thinking is do you agree that batman is just putting on the bruce wayne mask do you think that the bruce wayne personality is kind of not there i think at this point it's been so beaten into us that you really can't imagine it any other way you know i i can remember it you know in the 80s when that idea really started to take hold that it's persisted and persisted and persisted and the movies have definitely played into that you just look at uh the the way that christian bale played them you know, it was so very clear that Bruce Wayne was an afterthought to him being Batman. So I, I think at this point, it's just, it's so driven in that it's almost impossible to think of it in any other way. It's interesting. I mean, the fact that we can talk about this speaks to the power of Batman as a character. I mean, he could be interpreted so many different ways and every way is still right. You know, I mean, it, that's the, the beauty of it. I mean, personally, I like stories that have Bruce Wayne as a supporting cast member of sorts, you know, yeah. like, like when. Uh, Paul Dini was doing Detective Comics. Bruce Wayne was a was a player. He wasn't Batman all the time. He had to put on the mask of Bruce Wayne every once in a while. And Paul did that really well in, in his Detective Comics run. Grant Morrison, I think, also focused a little bit on Bruce in his run. I mean, I like that. I, I like seeing the other side of Batman and what Bruce has to do in order to function in the real world 
when he can't be Batman? What? How does Bruce Wayne handle something he can't just punch or scare his way out of? And yeah, th- th- those are interesting to me. Because yeah, each writer really does put their own spit on it. Like you said, you could take it so many different ways. Not anyone is right or wrong. For example, Doug Mensch says, I don't see Batman as being crazy, but I do see him as being obsessed. So you kind of look into that. Okay, how do you separate those things? While Chuck Dixon believes, quote, because he suffered his great trauma as a child, he reacted as a child, putting on a costume, fighting crime at night in the guise of an animal. And then Alan Grant professes that, quote, what makes it Batman is a decision. He took a decision in life to be a good guy. What defines his character is the decision to do something. So really, I feel like all of these are college thesis papers, right? You can, <laughs> you can dig into those, you know, for, for 20 pages or whatever. But uh, Brian, having been an editor at DC for many years, how did you handle coordinating with writers that maybe had different visions of the same character, you know, to maintain consistency? Like, was there a Bible for a character of certain things you had to follow? There really wasn't. And there should have been. I, I have a copy of Denny O'Neill's original Bat Bible from like 1988-89 and it's really fascinating because it's it's very specific and yet leaves a lot of room for others to interpret things differently but to me that always was my kind of north star if I was ever doing anything with Batman I, I kind of would refer back to that in fact you know how I got my hands on it it was Mike Cotton who had interned in the Bat office in the mid 90s and had a copy of this Bat Bible and he'd given me a copy of it and then when I came on staff I, I gave a copy to Mike Martz who was the Batman editor at the time he had never seen it Mike was going to up I think he actually did update it for whatever year it was 2009 2010, whatever. And so that Bible kind of still endures, but whether or not it was passed on beyond Mike, I, I couldn't tell you. No, but that that is so cool, man. Yeah, to have that inside thought to the man. Even in this article, they basically say, Denny is Batman. He's just been involved for so long and he defined the character in so many ways as the editor. So that's neat. Now, moving into a different area, though, they call this article The Chaos Theory. And it's an interview with Lady Death and Evil Ernie creator Brian Polito about what it takes to self-publish a comic about which he declares, quote, I experienced personal insanity for a year and a half. The creative freedom is a big advantage. If you succeed, you benefit. If you fail, you lose a lot of money. You're on the firing line 24 hours a day. You're going to give up a certain part of your life to have that creative freedom. Now, obviously in this period, that was like huge, you know, just the self-publishing, especially with image showing you could be insanely profitable by publishing your own books if you got a hot one. Um, but as professionals who saw a lot of companies come and go in the 90s, as well as being readers and retailers in the 80s during that initial independent comics boom and bust, ultimately, what do you think is the secret of success for a small press book? Like, Sean, for you, like selling the book, somebody tried to get you to carry their book. What's going to get the attention? How did you determine that? It actually got to a point where all the employees once a month, we would sit down, we would all go through when we were with Capital City Advanced Comics and when we were with Diamond, we'd go through previews. We'd all take a copy home for a week or two, then sit down in a meeting and discuss, you know, what titles leapt out at you? Why did it leap out at you? So it was very much a committee decision because there were so many new companies coming along that we couldn't figure it out. And one of the funniest things was that we went fairly heavy on Valiant and we barely sold any Valiant when it first came out. And we got to a point where we had two long boxes of them. 
and we saw what was going on in the rest of the country and we're like why can we not sell these we put them on the rack at cover price people were not buying them i finally ran a small ad in comic buyer's guide and sold out in about three four hours in one day wow so it was just regional just it was regional. It, wow. So it was completely random, really. You know, we, we kept seeing all the success for some, or like, say, you know, when there were all those Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles copies that started hitting the racks, you know, and we didn't go heavy on any of them. And then all of a sudden, preteen Dirty Jean Kung Fu Kangaroos took off. <laughs> and we're going, what is happening? You know, so the, there really was no formula for deciding which ones were going to take off and which ones weren't. You know, you would see companies like CrossGen come along and have this unbelievable pedigree behind it. And those books did nothing. You know, so I'm not sure anyone really could figure out that there was any form of formula. Yeah, Brian, like for you guys at Wizard, who obviously would take the time, you know, often to push these kind of rising stars that were getting hot, were you just getting the word for retailers? Hey, we hear people are interested in this. Or what was the main way that you would say, okay, this new small press book looks like there's something here. We're going to report on it. Yeah, we were communicating with uh, the retailer base. I mean, Garab and his family owned a comic book store, so we had a direct line with them to find out what people were buying uh, were interested in, what was selling out, uh, what wasn't. And in, in the case of Chaos Comics, we just we just really liked them. You know, Brian Polito and, and Francesca, I mean, all those folks, we would see them at the conventions and we just got along with them really well. And they, they weren't a very large publisher, but uh, they had a very fervent fan base, very passionate. And Chaos had weathered uh, some of the storm of the early 90s. In hindsight, the fact that we did this article in advance of the, the Marvel Heroes World thing, I, I, I think maybe a lot of the advice still holds up, but I'm sure some of it certainly altered as a result of the distributor wars that was about to come. Yeah, well, and it's interesting you say that, though, because ultimately it feels like it is those relationships you build. It is the attitude you have. Like, we just had Billy Tucci on and interviewed him, and he said, like, all the things that happened is just because people said, I like you, Billy. Yeah, I'm going to front you some money. I mean, who's the, who's the guy that worked for Wizard that came from Valiant? Fred Pierce. Yeah. He said he met Fred Pierce at a printing company, and he's like, hey, I like what you're doing here. You don't have the money. Oh, I'll front you the money for your printing costs. I like you, kid. You know, so it's just like that kind of stuff. If you could just make the connections and, and be the guy that everybody enjoys who also has a comic you want to sell, like they will help you out. It very much is who you know. It helps to be very friendly. <laughs> goes along with Sean did you have any interactions with aspiring comic book artists and writers that came to you for insight like because Brian Polito specifically says here quote your comic shop owner will give you more education than 15 other people the retailer knows what's going on did you feel like you were a source of info for aspiring uh, creators well I actually had two takes on this as a retailer you know I, I did have young aspiring artists you know how do I crack in and how do I crack in I was like guys you don't understand <laughs> you know and I, I would try as kindly as i could to explain to them that it's a long hard road and you know if i saw somebody with real talent i would foster them and spend a little bit more time with them the other thing was i actually spent some time working with you know i mentioned tim vigil and david quinn they had a, a small company called rebel studios and i would go to some conventions with them and actually do portfolio reviews for them because you know they were busy doing commissions or signing autographs or whatever so people would bring art in and I would sit there and I would discuss it with them and why it worked, why it didn't work. 
everybody and their brother seemed to be trying to crack in in the 90s especially after the image explosion and so you know you just you saw Liefeld clone after Liefeld clone after Liefeld clone you you had to sit there and tell them you have to do something that stands out i mean just because you draw like rob Liefeld doesn't mean you're going to get a job there's already a rob Liefeld, but there's only one of you and so that was something that I really tried to to explain to a lot of people and some listened, some didn't, you know, it just, it depended, but I would say image led to a lot more people being interested in the industry and wanting to get in. And that, that definitely wasn't a bad thing. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because like, you know, we were just in an article that was running a few issues back about the Joe Kubert school and they said they went to like 600 applicants a year, you know, they were trying to get in and they didn't have, you know, the ability to bring in that many students, but also on the, the tact of saying it has to be original, like we just reviewed Lady Death uh, Between Heaven and Hell, that little mini series uh, for one of our mini episodes. And yeah, like Chaos Comics, they stand out. I mean, just like the page layouts, just everything in addition to the character designs just they look so different than everything else they're exciting they're frenetic in a lot of ways really um i'm curious how well did chaos comics sell in your store lady death sold well but the the other ones were so so everybody and their brother was interested in lady death and we kept going hey we have back issues of where she started i don't care just give me the latest lady death (laughs) okay guys sure ignore the genesis book (laughs) well get back to dc here this next article bugging out is an interview with dan jurgens about his superman aliens crossover story which had been in the works for like three years at this point we remember covering it way back when that he was mentioning oh yeah i'm gonna work on this it's coming out eventually the hook of this story according to jurgens is that quote the story takes place far away from earth far away from a sun where superman's powers are not just depleted but leaving him the story involves superman essentially protecting a young girl named kara in this place called argo city who speaks kryptonian so it's leading you to think that she's supergirl and you know she is cousin you know like you know from regular continuity i actually read through it and there is a surprise there if anybody wants to check this out it is maybe more than it seems but it's interesting this is like dc and dark horse they had already done this twice before with batman facing off against the predator so i'm curious with you guys how did you feel about the the blending you know taking these superheroes in tights these classic icons mixing them with sci-fi action movie creatures because i i know they sold incredibly well didn't they not in my store really <laughs> i they became a punchline oh. for a lot of our customers you know we, because we, when the first one came along we we ordered fairly heavily on it and after that i think we ordered like five six copies Ooh. and again that could be regional you know but it was never a, a big thing for us. And a lot of our customers just were like, really, they're doing this again. Why? And <laughs> well, but it, does that go for like all, like just the straight aliens titles or the predator stories? Like, did they sell better than the crossovers? To your knowledge? Yes. They, okay. they sold better than the crossovers. The crossovers, our customers just couldn't wrap their heads around. Okay. They, they just couldn't figure out why they wanted to read about Superman fighting aliens. <laughs> I mean, I, I thought it was pretty creative. I, I like what Dan Jurgens did it. I thought it was smart of him to get Kevin Nolan to draw it and not do his own art style that, you know, because Dan Jurgens very specific, very iconic in his own right. And so getting Kevin Nolan, it gave it a totally different feel. It was a much darker story, but it had some neat twists and turns. So check it out, guys. Brian, did you ever read it? I, I loved it. I thought it was great. I, I, it was one of my favorite crossovers with the Aliens franchise. I, I was really pleased. And I, I actually got a chance to work with uh, Dan and Kevin 
in 2021, one of the last projects at DC I was working on called Generations, where Kevin inked Dan again, and it was really cool. Oh, neat. All right. Now, also, this issue marks the debut of Greg Capullo's Crash Course Instructional Drawing Column in Wizard. Brian, do you have any recollection of what led to Bart Sears ending Brutes and Babes several months prior and then leaving this opening for Greg to get his own column? I seem to recall, I think Bart was just super busy. I don't think he could meet the deadlines. Uh, he was doing the twice monthly Exo Mana War at, the point, at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And I know him and Andy Smith were kind of tag teaming on the art with Ron Mars writing. I don't know if he stepped away or if we had to make the decision to find someone who could be consistent. I think Pat and I just talked it out as to who we could probably approach. And we had a really great relationship with Greg Capullo. I was a big fan of Greg's from like when he was drawing Quasar. I've been following him for years before he got to spawn, you know, he jumped onto X-Force and then spawn and he was just really great. And we had a good relationship with him and he knew how to draw. And he seemed, even in conversations, clearly there was, was a method to the madness. I think I called up Greg and asked him if he had any interest in, in doing a how to draw column. And of course he, he did. And he embraced it. He did, he did a phenomenal job between him and Bart kind of going one after the other. Greg just gave a different perspective on the inner workings of and, and skill sets of how to, how to draw characters yeah. and, and all that. I mean, he was, he was a lot of fun to work with. Well, and I remember the change because, yeah, I mean, obviously Bart was a great illustrator and I remember seeing his column when he was running it, but then it always stuck out to me that Greg's art just seemed a little bit more fun. He was doing a little bit more cartoony type of stuff. And a lot of times he would like even sketch his own head. Like, who's this guy with a mustache and a spawn baseball cap that he's drawing? <laughs> and I was like, oh, he's drawing himself. This is great. Capullo calls out these hotshot artists who say, quote, I don't need to learn the basics or draw from life because I draw from a imagination and have a stylized approach. And according to this spawn artist, quote, that's capital BS. It's just a cop out the lightweights use who ain't got what it takes to get them down. (laughs) And I just think that the attitude that he's debunking in that statement seems to be a reaction, obviously, to the success of the image founders. You know, you call it unique visual aesthetics, uh, which seem to be the benchmark for the aspiring artists like Sean was mentioning. Of course, Capula himself was working at Image and now though is this revered like old timer you know he's just like this guy but probably more people associated maybe with Batman than Spawn I don't know but is there a hot artist of this era you know who had a distinct style who you guys admired or even continue to appreciate that wasn't just a flash in the pan I still have a lot of fondness for Gary Frank Hmm. and Dale Keown they were a little bit different and you know and I I appreciated them but a lot of this was such a product of the time period that it's definitely aged itself. And so I think if the artist was better at the basics, I, I was really into them. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll agree with you there on Gary. I mean, I, I get to work with him practically every day now. And, you know, Gary is one of those artists that he puts in the work and, and the work he's doing right now is is the best work he's ever done. So, I mean, I think that's kind of the secret to longevity in the business and, and growing and evolving as, a, as an artist uh, in a way where it's not cutting corners or kind of doing the same old thing, you know, that, that you've always been doing. 
So, I mean, Gary is a great example of that. Greg also is a workhorse. I mean, Greg still does the work. I mean, he puts in 10, 14 hour days to do pages nowadays. And then four hours at the gym, dude is ripped. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's got to, he's got to get that time in. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to see that Greg's not somebody who kind of rests on his laurels and, and same goes for Gary. I mean, uh, that they're constantly trying to improve and learn tricks to their craft that uh, they haven't done yet. I also yeah. have a soft spot for Paul Pelletier because I've always liked Paul as a storyteller. I think he's, he's always rock solid. You know, he's, he's been in the business since, since the nineties. So, and he's, he's a monthly guy. He does the work. Well, that's awesome. I mean, it's, it's great to see those, like you say, who are able to evolve and just get the actual mentality of producing, not just, you know, again, this hot moment, you got to wait months for it to come out. It's like, no, 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 it's consistent. It's consistently good. And uh, we appreciate them for it. But speaking of those fundamentals of illustration, making a difference is an interview with Neil Adams about his influential career in comics. So let's just throw it out there up top, guys. What is your favorite Neil Adams project? To me, Neil Adams' Batman is the Batman. Now, of course, I was I was born in 1971, so I, I grew up through that time period. You know, but you look back at his work on the Green Lantern, Green Arrow covers, all of his Batman work. To me, he is the defining look of so many of the DC characters. I really can't think of one piece of Neil Adams' art I ever went ooh. It just he was always an amazing artist. Oh yeah, I mean Batman. No doubt. Uh, I also have a fondness for Dead Man as well. But yeah, I mean, he's such a defining artist of a, a particular era that endured for a very long time. I mean, I think everyone was kind of walking in Neil's footsteps for a generation. The guy is, you know, possibly on the Mount Rushmore of comics. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's weird because for me, because he is not of my era and the work that he was doing in the 90s when i was taking up the hobby maybe not his best i mean I, I, there's like a house style for continuity comics and i just enjoy his layouts when i go and read his older stuff you know his stuff he did for dc and things like that but i don't know if i and, and this is like what he's known for in so many ways but i don't know if i like his figure work as much like again the layout of it but the finished work never speaks to me and so it's kind of weird. I know I'm, I'm probably in the minority there, but when I read his stuff, it always feels unfinished. It seems a little too scratchy, a little too sketchy. And so like, I, I look at it and I'm like, okay, I mean, I see what he's doing here, but I guess I like a more defined line on my it, figures. I don't it know. It sounds, it, it, it's, it sounds like it's a, somewhat of maybe a generational thing because yeah. I, I kind of felt the same way with, with say Jack Kirby, who I, whose work I I've come to appreciate over time. But, you know, when I was a kid buying comics in the eighties, you know, by that point, Kirby was, was a bygone style, you know, it was a style of a, a previous era. and wasn't really fashionable at that point in time. I, I had the exact same journey with Jack Kirby as you did, Brian. I, and when I was young, I was like, uh, and now I just adore anything he drew. Yeah, it's interesting how that works. You, you come back and you appreciate those things. Like I say, my time will come. Maybe in a decade, Neil Adams will be my guy, you know? <laughs> but of redefining Batman, Adams says, quote, I decide, you know, the Batman will come in through the window and the shadows. I decide that Batman's cape will be longer. His ears are going to be more pointy. The lighting on his face more shadowed. And apparently this got a huge response from the fans. And then that was noticed by Julius Schwartz, who then reportedly declared, 
well, you're drawn Batman now. <laughs> so Adams became that go-to guy, but he also mentions his trailblazing work as a freelancer in a funny story because uh, he says that where Stan Lee was concerned at one point about promoting Adams on Marvel Books by his name uh, at the same time that he was working for DC, where his name was being published there. And so Stan asked, what name would you like to use? To which the artist responded, well, Stan, my name is Neil Adams. So if you'd write that down, I'd appreciate that. <laughs> they just had a little back and forth. So maybe you don't want me drawing your books. And Stan's like, oh, no, 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 no. Well, so he kind of broke down that wall of people being able to work for both publishers and be credited not using a different pen name. That Adam's obviously very influential, like Brian was saying, for you know artists like Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane, like they'll reach back and say, oh, yeah, you know, definitely uh, Neil Adams. And they like the art Adams too, right? So <laughs> kind of a blending of those styles. So he mentions how Todd pulled the plug on the Spawn Valeria the She-Bat crossover from a few years prior because McFarlane thought it would distract from the publicity of the Spawn Batman crossover books. We didn't know because we're going through this in real time, right? And so when we saw this Spawn Valeria the She-Bat crossover, I was like scouring eBay. I'm trying to find back issues. You know, I finally found a write-up that said, oh, it was never produced. I was like, oh. <laughs> but now Neil is back. He was going to be publishing Valeria the She-Bat again. So he finally got to do a limited series there but if you're on instagram you could also catch neil adams regularly doing live videos so he just comes on and he starts talking he starts sketching he'll just get into it so he is still connected with the industry this to this day so i'm curious for you guys did you ever have interactions with him at a convention or brian through the magazine i had dinner with him a few years back I think at the Toronto Fan Expo, a couple of us at DC had dinner with Neil. And it was great. It was a great time. He was very entertaining. You got the usual Neil bombast that you kind of expect, but it was all, it was, it was all very entertaining. I never have had an opportunity to meet him. You know, it, I've passed him, you know, when I was at like Comic-Con or whatever, but he always had a line and I always had somewhere else to be, unfortunately. Well, that's the way it goes. Busy man, popular man. Hey there, geeks. We're just taking a break from the show to tell you about our sponsor this holiday season, Fun.com. And stay tuned, because you're going to learn how you can get 20% off at Fun.com. But why Fun.com? Well, they have everything you need for the pop culture lover in your life. But of course, they have a wide selection of superhero and comic book-based gifts as well. Let me just tell you some of the stuff that I was looking up and was super impressed by. First of all, have you ever wanted to have a fully decked out Batman 1989 bedroom? Well, right now, you can get a three-piece comforter set and a rug to go on the ground. Man, living in your own little bat cave every morning. How about a, something for your furry pal? A venom squeaker toy for dog. Let Eddie Brock get slobbered on for once. Looking to get a little bit more high class? How about the DC Comics Star Labs desktop stationery set? Yep, you could write some official memos direct from Star Labs. If you've got a Wonder Woman in your life, why not hook her up with a single brew coffee maker branded with the Wonder Woman symbol and a seven quart Wonder woman slow cooker you add a little bit extra fun to the kitchen with a batman logo two slice toaster it'll toast the bat signal 
right onto your toast. But hey, if you want to get some Marvel in your morning, how about a 7-inch Black Panther waffle maker? Yep, get that Black Panther logo right on your waffle for that crunchy delight. Now, I'll tell you what I think I'm going to invest in myself is a set of Power Rangers Geeky Tiki Cups. They look like they're carved out of wood and colored in the style of each ranger. But of course, they've got Funko Pop figures, all sorts of t-shirts, and of course, those exclusive Christmas sweaters with logos of your favorite comic book heroes and villains? How do you get in on the action? Well, all you gotta do is click on the link in our show notes and it'll take you direct to the website where it'll pop up and tell you your 20% discount is now activated and you will get 20% off your order from fun.com. The best part is, if you have a little extra cash hanging around after the holidays, you wanna get a little something for yourself? Well, this offer is good through January 7th, 2022. So be sure to do your shopping this holiday season at fun.com. And now back to the show. Now, this is going to be an interesting one, guys, because You Are What You Eat is an interview with Mark Miller and Grant Morrison about their wild new Marvel comic, Scroll Kill Crew, which has a gang of humans who ate scroll burgers made from the scrolls defeated by the Fantastic Four in issue two and gained powers as a result, hunting down the wrinkly chinned invaders, right? That is their thing. It's an amazing premise. So Morrison and, and Miller, or is it Millar? What do you what do you guys know? He has told me personally, and, and you know, it's it's Mark, so you kind of <laughs> you have to take some of what he says with a grain of salt, but he he's always said it's it's just Miller. It's not okay. It's, so, you don't have well, to get fancy with it because he's your yeah, it's, it's okay. So I, I've always just I'm kind of even if he's just pulling my leg, I've just kind of just went with it. So yeah, well, uh, and I, I'm curious what you guys knew about them in 1995 because it seemed like they were mainly guys writing Vertigo books for DC. You know, like were you reading Animal Man and Doom Patrol, The Invisibles, and you know Miller's doing Swamp Thing at this point too? Like, were you guys connected to them that way? I'll tell you the origin story of how we became aware of Skrull Kill Crew. Okay. We received a fax. This is the days where people communicated by fax. We had we got a fax from Grant and Mark printed on a, you know, a dot matrix printer, this letter explaining that they're doing this book called Skrull Kill Crew and gave us the premise and Steve Yeoll is uh, drawing it and they would love for Wizard to cover it. And I think I got the facts first and I read it out loud to Pat and we were kind of enchanted by it, even though these two, two guys were mostly known for, you know, the offbeat Vertigo material. The idea was really fun and Pat and I were big FF fans. We love Fantastic Four. We love that annual that John Byrne did that also extrapolated upon that early Skrull story. The Skrull cows milk polluting a, an entire town uh, <laughs> that they were left in. It was it was a great fun story. And now Grant and Mark were taking it one step further. And the fact that it was all tied into longtime Marvel continuity and, and it all made sense. It was fun. It was taking the idea and making it a little more extreme. And we were totally into that. And that was actually our first interaction with, with Grant and Mark. And then it, that would continue the following year when Grant was hired to do JLA. We had an inroad with Grant and we also had an inroad with the editor who was launching that book at the time. It was a nice relationship because 
it was taking something very unexpected and making something cool out of it. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll agree. I remember hearing about it and I never picked it up. And then like, you know, like two years ago or something, I was in a comic book store. They had the complete storyline, you know, everything put together in a bag. And so I grabbed them and I was, was waiting until it came up in the timeline. So I just read it this last week and I was just like, wow. I mean, this is <laughs> just wild 90s attitude all over the place. You know, these guys could just stretch their bodies and transform and do whatever they want to do but then you know you just got like a, a riot girl you got this pop star you got you know a biker dude an ex-shield agent like all these like a white supremacist you know is a character with a hammer you know but then right. the leader of the team is african-american so it's just like there's like all these dynamics going on but ultimately it just comes down to we're gonna show up in different places and murder scrolls we're just gonna blow them away and like that's just the whole idea behind it so what do you recall about this showing up in your store there Sean. I am going to be very honest and say I have zero memory of this title. Wow. You've had it in the notes. I was like, the what? <laughs> <laughs> I I cannot remember a thing about this book and I don't know why. But listening to you two, I kind of want to read it. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's ask this then, because obviously you're very familiar with, you know, Morrison and Miller's work. Mm -hmm. So do you have a particular favorite run of theirs or favorite project that they've put out? I'll be very middle of the road and just say Animal Man. I, I thought Animal Man was just out of this world. You know, the, the idea that he was aware of, you know, that he was a comic book character was just so Kinda crazy like the at the DC time. the equivalent of She-Hulk when Bird was writing it. Exactly. Exactly. And do Doom Patrol was great too. And I, I've been revisiting Doom Patrol since the TV series came along. And I'm just remembering how crazy that book was. But they did a lot of stuff that, that I enjoyed. I just, for the life of me, cannot remember this book. <laughs> so you're mentioning, you know, the Morrison stuff. Now, Miller for me is a guy who he's mostly miss for me and occasionally hits. Like I like when he's reined in on something like this, where he obviously had editors. Cause I'm sure this book was even wilder in their conception, a more offensive. Like I enjoyed his work on civil war. Like I thought that was fantastic. That was like one of the last great, you know, things that brought me into the comic book store for months and months. But like, then when I read like all his other stuff, you know, like the concept of wanted is awesome. And then he takes, takes it too far. The concept of kick-ass is awesome that he takes it too far. Like everything he does is just like shock value. And so it just, I can, can never stay connected to, to a Mark Miller project. And, and when he goes the other way, like he did that, that Marvel 1985 little mini series about this kid who's like interacting with the superheroes of the real world. Like that was too sappy for me. So I just, I rarely connect with him. He reminds me a lot of uh, Michael Crichton as a writer. Crichton would have these great ideas for a book like Jurassic Park for the first, you know, seven eighths of that book. You're just glued to it. You cannot put it down. You get to the last eighth and you're like, wait, what? And it was same with the Andromeda strain and all that. So it, it, a lot of these people come up with these great concepts and then it feels like they don't know how to end them naturally. And I, I agree with you. I think he does have that problem at times. So Brian, do you have a favorite for you, like Mark Miller project or Grant project? I can understand Mark's material being hit or miss. For me, they're they're more hit than miss. Uh, I, I tend to go along with it. No one talks about this, but the material that Mark did for the Superman Adventures comic was really fantastic. It was great, great Superman stories. And that's one thing that never gets talked about with Mark's repertoire, but he just wrote a really a great Superman 
man and great supporting cast. He picked up the the ball after Scott McCloud left that book. And I credit DC for not doing throwaway stories for those kind of animation in universe books. Because at the time, I mean, Batman Adventures was great. Kelly Jones and Mike Parabek, they were fantastic. Superman Adventures had Terry Austin. Uh, Marie Severin was coloring it. It was it was just awesome. It was a really great stuff. Oh, well, there's something um, to go back and find, guys. Wow. I, 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 they reprinted it in, the, in a digest size. My favorite one is Mark wrote 22 stories in 22 pages. So basically each page was its own Superman related story. And, and, you know, yeah, it's a gimmick, but it was fun. He, and he pulls it off. He he pulls it off really well. Grant, I had an opportunity to work with him on the Green Lantern stuff that he did at DC. uh, And that was super fun. JLA is, I would say 85% of it is, is just phenomenal. And then some of it, uh, you know, goes over my head a little bit, but, but the moments that he was able to get in JLA with some of these characters, like actual cheer moments. Those are the most memorable things for me where he just, he was just so in tune with these characters that he was able to just land these, these iconic moments so well. Well, that's great to hear. Now, finally here, we get more details about the Ultraverse Marvel Universe crossover taking place in Ultraverse number eight, where the Black Knight appears in the Ultraverse as a transplant from the good old 616. The bigger news is that George Perez is drawing the book while his old Teen Titans collaborator, Marv Wolfman is scripting the book. Though neither will call it an official reunion, Perez says he's doing extra work on the book now because, quote, I don't want Marv to be disappointed working with me again. He was not only my partner, but one of my harshest critics. <laughs> Gotta impress your collaborator there. But as you know, retailers and reporters, what did you guys think of the Malibu Ultraverse attempt to combine with the Marvel Universe and the crossovers and everything after that buyout? You know, for me, Malibu was never a, a big seller. You know, it just, when Marvel bought them, my customers were just like, okay, new characters. And they, they just, they really didn't give a second thought to it because they had not been interested in it as its own universe. Oh, okay. So yeah, it just, the whole Ultraverse was just a, a big miss for us. There were some books I didn't care for. Uh, they just weren't for me. The Prime was a book that was just right up my alley. I I really liked Prime. I I talked a lot with the editor of Prime, Hank Canals, who I'm still working with, oddly, you know, 25 years later. But Malibu's Ultraverse is kind of like a tragedy in a way, because I don't think you'll ever see those characters again, unless Marvel decides to sell off that IP, which I don't think they they would. And my understanding is the the reason for that is, you know, Ultraverse was built, they had founders, you know, basically it was creator driven uh very writer driven i should say well those writers have a financial stake in these characters and my understanding is marvel doesn't want to do anything with these characters because they don't want to have to pay out they feel it's not worth it for them to do anything which is which is kind of sad because i mean the fact that we'll never see them again (laughs) closes the lid on that yeah so it was it was a great concept creatively at the time but now business-wise it now prevents them from being able to express themselves again with those characters and connect with them again so uh that's too bad well now talking about some uh, maybe missed opportunities uh let's get into heroes in motion
Uh, so Mark Silvestri reportedly has deals to produce not only a Cyberforce cartoon series for Fox, but also a live action film. Additionally, Silvestri is developing a live action TV series that is speculated maybe based on Weapon Zero or The Darkness. Uh, none of these projects ever really make it to production. You know, we didn't see the results of this. Do you guys have any recollection of, of Cyberforce test reels or anything like that? Not me. I've, I've never seen anything. Yeah. I know there's like the Youngblood one going around online, but I've never seen anything from Cyberforce. So, but speaking of which, uh, I'm about to put some more money in the jar because Profit by Rob Liefeld. Oh, there it is. Had reportedly been optioned for development of a feature film by TriStar Pictures at this moment in time. Of course, like all Liefeld adaptations, this never happens. Though it is particularly interesting in modern times, since Rob is excited about Jake Gyllenhaal being attached to a new live-action movie script. Uh, also rumored at this time is that Arnold Schwarzenegger might star in the Liefeld movie concept Power of the Mark, which he had been developing with Tom Cruise. But yeah, Rob. I'm sorry, doing his own casting call there. In a mention of a Superman animated series being in development, it's also made known to us that John Waters of Pink Flamingo's fame was attached to a live action Superman movie. <laughs> I have never heard of that before. That, it, that sounds like a one-time meeting and then they said, okay, thanks John, thanks for coming in here. But of course, later Tim Burton and Nicolas Cage were attached to another strange adaptation of The Man of Steel. So I just have to ask, what kind of kryptonite crack was Warner Brothers smoking in the 90s? That they said, we're, we're going to give Superman to John Waters. I just can't imagine <laughs> have you ever seen the documentary about Superman oh yeah Lib? oh i bought it yeah I, I have it downloaded on my computer that's fascinating that seems like it was the biggest nightmare project that ever happened and yeah. the notes they were getting about you know and that superman had to fight a giant spider and everything <laughs> i don't know what was going on with superman in the 90s and of course i don't know what's going on with superman now is henry cavill superman is he not we don't know yeah it's a character that warner brothers has always seemed to just not know what to do with they got it right once maybe twice killed superman 2 is pretty good and then yeah after that kind of kind of rough uh, but speaking of Nicolas Cage, he missed out on that role, but you know, he chose his screen surname because of his love of a certain hero for hire. It's mentioned that a Luke Cage film is rumored to be a development with John Singleton directing. Of course, we don't get a live action Luke Cage until the Netflix series many decades later. Getting back to Chaos Comics, though, there's a brief mention of an evil Ernie movie possibly being in development. It's very early stages, but I think of everything that's mentioned so far, that would have been the most fun to see produced an evil Ernie movie like from New Line Cinema that would have been so cool yeah. um, finally there is a report from the set of the upcoming film Batman Forever where Chris O'Donnell reveals that he vetoed his character wearing tights instead going for a more armored look then director Joel Schumacher makes a statement which I think ultimately proves to be his downfall in the minds of fans and critics quote I want Batman to be a little funnier and less dark the TV series had a lot of humor in it that was missing from the first two films 
Mm. <laughs> well, you certainly amp that up in those movies. I, I will say that my co-host, Steven Sapelis, who is not here, you know, he has a great love for Batman Forever. That was a movie that he sojourned to the theaters through many obstacles to get there and enjoy. And then years later, ran into Joel Schumacher in an elevator. And he said, by the way, I love Batman Forever. He's like, oh, that's so nice. Thank you. You know, I just gave away all the, my memorabilia that I had saved up for Batman Forever. I was like, oh, <laughs> cleaned house. Okay. All right. But closing out here in this issue, this is very exciting. We have another casting call, this time for a live action Gen 13 movie. So guys, <laughs> a Gen 13 movie in live action. Brian, I think I know the answer, but why set this up after you had done a Spider-Man? You had done an Avengers casting call, an X-Men casting call. Why Gen 13 for this issue? Probably one to get a little more image coverage. There was always a, d- a delicate balance in terms of content. We, we wanted to make sure we were touching all the bases uh, as much as possible. You know, Gen 13 was pretty hot. I mean, back in those days, casting call, it was me, Pat, Dan Riley was the one who had to pull all the photographs. And over time, Dan took on a even greater role in producing the casting calls. And I, I basically, I would kind of beg off after a certain point Uh, I'd be involved, but not as much as I had been in the earlier ones. Okay. I look at this one and I I have to say, I don't know what we're thinking. It's kind of bizarre, right? I mean, first off for Fairchild, Caitlin Fairchild, the idea is to have Lauren Hawley, who at this point was on Picket Fences on TV and had recently appeared with Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber. It seemed what what we've remarked on is a lot of times you guys were just finding a photo and they're like, well, the hair matches. Well, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) that's funny you say that because it definitely could happen that way because uh, sometimes Dan in getting slides, for you know these actors and actresses sometimes he would cut he would bring in like look at this picture and be like oh my gosh it's uh, it's so and so unbelievable but i mean looking at this i mean uh, none of these characters are are, i mean maybe tiffany amber Thiessen maybe could be could have passed as a teenager but like lauren holly was probably in her late 20s 30s at that point (laughs) Uh, is there any chance brand that you were comparing their calves <laughs> That's all these pictures should have been below the kneecap. That's for sure. <laughs> that, that had to be factored in. Yes. It was an interesting choice, Tiffany Ebertheus, and from Saved by the Bell as Freefall. Because obviously, yeah, she was famous for playing a teenager on television while she was a teenager, but she was on Beverly Hills 90210 as the bad girl at this point. The only thing is, I don't know if she has quite the attitude of Roxy as a big Gen 13 fan. I feel like you had to get someone that was maybe just a little bit more spunky uh, in a different sense, you know, not like sweet girl next door, which is kind of what uh, Tiffany Amethyst was playing against on that or two and at this point, but pretty hilarious that uh, they also wanted to reunite her with the Saved by the Bell cast star and have Mark Paul Gosseler as Burnout, which I just say, why not? Because nobody cared about Burnout. Put anybody in that role. <laughs> <laughs> he was probably the most boring character in the book. Rainmaker was interesting because Tia Carrere, you know, like was just like okay she's 100% not Native American so I I don't know why you know that was the choice but then we have Jason Scott Lee who played Bruce Lee in Dragon the Bruce Lee story as grunge the only thing I can think is just there weren't a whole lot of Asian actors available yeah who else would you choose to play grunge yeah I remember that one being really really tough and really for the first time we we actually 
actually reached out to someone else to uh, help us cast it, which, uh, you know, Jason Campbell graciously yeah. uh, gave his opinion on it. You, you know, you know who I actually would have chosen in that role because you want somebody with like attitude grudge in that book was like the attitude, right? He was just so much fun. I would think somebody like Dante Basco who played Rufio in Hook. He, you know, because he was a younger teenage actor at that time, he might have been able to do some grunge. I don't know, just buff him up a little bit. Or no, actually, you know what? Who would have been perfect? Oh, I can't believe I, this totally escaped me. Ernie Reyes Jr. He had just starred in Surf Ninjas the year before, and he was playing a hundred percent that California surfer punk with an attitude. Man, Ernie Reyes Jr.'s grunge. That would have just been two of my worlds combining in the perfect way. Next was obviously like there was no other choice. It's just like Patrick Stewart as Professor X when you get Clint Eastwood as John Lynch. <laughs> I mean, it's obviously based on Clint Eastwood. So <laughs> you just go to the source on that one. Ivana Bayul, they chose Emma Sams, who had been on Dynasty General Hospital Models, Inc. <laughs> with Pamela Anderson at that point. Again, that's like a character. You're just like, okay, yeah, whoever you want to put in there, we're, we're not going to be picky. Now, Matt Callahan or Threshold, they chose this guy I've never heard of in my life. Jack Noseworthy. I don't know why, Brian, but... <laughs> well. I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, he was dead at 21. He, the Brady Bunch movie? He was the next door neighbor, I think. Oh, okay. I want to say some of these were Dan. I think Emma Sams was, was probably Dan. Okay. They were fun. I mean, even Bliss. Bliss was a was a good cast with Courtney Cox. Yeah, Maybe. that could that could have been fun. Because, I mean, really, the, the whole point behind Casting Call was, yeah, if they make a movie, wouldn't it be fun if X played Y? But our North Star was, if the actor looks the part, then that's all that matters. Yeah, this is a visual casting call yes, at this point. Totally, yeah, totally visual. <laughs> All right. Well, moving out of that, you know, though he appears on the cover of this issue, it's been suggested both by my co-hosts and some of our listeners that we change the name of our Asriel's action figure fury section since the popularity of that character really wanes after this point in history. So while the new name is still up for debate officially, to honor our special guest on this episode, we are renaming the segment this time around, Ani's action figure fury. And that's why Well, first off, I have to thank Brian again for giving me the opportunity to take over his beloved column. I, I will never forget that phone call of, you want to take over my column? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was pretty much how it went. But um, I did look over this particular one, and it, it's interesting because this was the second part of some Toy Fair coverage, and there was so much that year they didn't let me see, particularly the Star Wars line. That was there, but it was behind a door, and they wouldn't let any press in to see it. And after those figures came out, we all understood why. <laughs> those were not good figures. It was interesting that Mattel was trying so hard with the new die-cast line that for some reason they thought was going to work yeah that was so bizarre because i always remember thinking when judge dread was coming out i'm like oh 
oh, there's probably going to be like a full line of action figures. And all we got were these stinky little metal guys. It made no sense. And what was so funny was in the showroom, they had a big lawbringer bike and they had a female judge there to, you know, walk us through the toy line. I mean, they, they went all out at the show. It just, it made no sense. No sense. Because I mean, I, I would say the only group that ever did the die cast right, in my opinion, just in this era was when Toy Biz did those metal mutants, because mm-hmm. they at least had a little bit of articulation. You could play with them a little bit, not just set them on a shelf. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, you wanted to ask me about the Arthur's apartment. Yeah, it was going to be like this big play set for the Tick line. And they even explain it here where they say that then Tick can bound away to the rooftop fortress play set, which will feature both a rooftop play area and the interior of Arthur's apartment. The set will feature a breakaway roof edge, secret passageways and tons more thrills like that would have been so much fun to play with. As far as I can remember, that never did come out. That was not an uncommon thing at Toy Fair, you know, because like Playmates also one year showed off a Sequest DSV submarine. It was like two feet long. It was gorgeous. Wow. That never got released. And that still happens. I was at Toy Fair 2019 and they showed off a Turtles playset that was going to connect to an existing playset. And it was really cool. It was going to end up making the playset like almost four feet tall. It was gigantic. And at Toy Fair 2020, I was like, hey, uh, where's the, the sewer place? And they're like, yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> and, you know, so it's it still happens. You know, they'll, they'll bring these big pieces out and show them at Toy Fair and engage with the retailer interests in them. And if there's just not enough orders, the item simply doesn't get produced. Well, and I got to say, though, Sean, I feel like you've glossed over one very important toy line everybody wants to hear about. It's right up there with the shadow. It is the Congo toy line you mentioned michael Kite uh, earlier yeah <laughs> i love this line. movie you know i saw it in theaters it is ridiculous and terrible and i love to laugh at it but i still have not picked up any of the figures even out of that love for it. if there's no tim curry as hamurka or Hamalka, i just i don't have a need for this toy line a talking I, I, tim curry figure i have a theory that if you went out and bought a congo figure you would actually be the first person to have ever purchased a congo figure <laughs> This was the heyday of the, oh, there's a movie coming out. Let's launch a garbage toy line that we can produce quickly for it. I mean, we have to remember this is the decade of the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves line. You know, yes, there was so many or or even the, the Stargate toy line. Oh, that thing was painful. (laughs) Yeah. That thing was painful. You know? So yeah. Congo. Yeah. I wrote about that in the article. We'll, we'll just say that. Uh, (laughs) and this was when star trek was starting to get really weird because next generation had ended and they were starting to do this inner space line which for some reason everyone was obsessed with miniature play sets yeah mighty max right just taking the mighty max idea yeah and they were trying to bring it to everything and it didn't work for so many things and we're actually starting to see a little bit of that come back again because you have all these miniature toy lines coming out. Polly Pocket is back, you know, for crying Yeah, out my kids, I actually had to buy my son some vintage Mighty Max toys because he loves my daughter's Polly Pocket toys, but there's no boy equivalent that we could find. And so he wants these adventure toys. I'm like, okay, got some Mighty Max for you. Yeah, it, oh, even Godzilla got little play sets like this in the 90s. And it was just like... <laughs> Why is this happening? It was a weird time for toys. You know, I I still love a lot of the toys, but man, there were some real, 
real yeah. misses at, at well, base well, there. Brian, I'm curious for you. Obviously, you hadn't been running the column at this point, but for you, like, were you still buying figures or getting the comps that came into the office? Like, were you getting excited by any action figures of this era that you can recall? A golden age for uh, for the stuff. The fact that we were even seeing a samurai Batman is is insane <laughs> to me. You know, after having gone through a void of no real superhero action figures for for a while until toy biz shows up basically yeah i mean it, it, some of the stuff went pretty over the top with uh, with things but you know the fact that you had these these choices it was really cool yeah uh, i'm trying to remember when did mcfarland toys start up at this point that, that, were, were that they... was in this era yeah so they were they were yeah. happening yeah so, I mean, at that point, toys were still kind of like Mattel and Kenner's. They were still doing toys kind of the way that they always were doing toys. They really weren't reinventing the wheels. They were doing the the minimum amount of articulation possible. And then McFarlane comes along and says, we can do better. And kind of revolutionized the whole business by incorporating a ton of articulation and uh, detail that, you know, that industry hadn't seen at that point. So, I mean, he kind of forced other companies to level up have you heard the story of the first year mcfarland toys was at toy fair oh no let's hear this okay (laughs) so i i was at toy fair for wizard and i got word that todd mcfarland was there i I actually i believe brian i i think you may have called me and told me that i was like okay I'll, i'll go and find him and they were in what was called an incubator room which is for small companies that were just starting they would share the costs of a big room and so I, I went and found the incubator. I go in and McFarland is sitting there at this round conference table with foam core cutouts of the first six figures. He had only decided six weeks before Toy Fair that he was forming a toy company. So all he had done was print pictures out, put them on foam core and cut them out and went, these are the action figures you're ordering. <laughs> and so it's, it was amazing to see him grow over the next several years because we all remembered the stupid foam core cutouts. And like three, four years later, he had his giant own showroom, you know, with multiple toy lines and like Wilsh Protasio was there with the Wetworks toys and, you know, but it just, the first year was, let's just call it low key. Yeah, that's wild because I remember that my one and only San Diego Comic-Con I went to in like 97, just walking into the McFarland booth and it was like they had built like this enclosure and you would go inside, there were TVs and there was, you know, and the catalog was fantastic. And yeah, so definitely uh, grew uh, from those humble beginnings. Yeah, Um, just a little bit. (laughs) But speaking of Todd, oh, it's time to get into his segment here with Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. Now, Brian, quick question. We've been following this in the magazine. Do you have any idea why Jim Lee disappeared from the top 10 artists ranking for about six months and then suddenly just reappeared in the number five spot out of nowhere? We were just like, what happened to Jim Lee? How could he not be in here? I was trying to figure that out. And I don't recall exactly why. It may have had something to do with him not drawing 
<laughs> I don't, yeah, I, don't know. I mean, that was true. I mean, he went on a sabbatical just to spend time with his family, it was reported. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think we took him off to make way for some other new faces. And, and I think when he came back, and I'm trying to remember what that was. Was that Divine Right? Maybe you're right, because I think he's doing the Wildstorm Rising event at this point in time, but I don't think that he is actually drawing anything. Like, he's still kind of just the puppet master behind the event, so... Yeah, I don't think he was actively drawing anything at this okay. period. And that makes sense. I don't know that for yeah. a fact, but I, I I seem to recall that he he did step back from the monthly grind for a while. So I, th- I think that was probably what what caused that yeah now you know the one person who did not step back always in the forefront of promoting himself todd's ego column this month contains a request for readers to be straight with mcfarlane about whether they want spawn to have a second title out each month maybe more crossovers with the image universe or if he should kill off al simmons and bring him back in some big event basically todd wants to know if readers feel ripped off by big events where they raise the price of the books which is basically just another swipe at marvel's greedy business practices <laughs> is just really on a tear against Marvel. So I'm curious from your perspective, guys, what you've seen, Brian, on the publishing side, and then what you've seen, Sean, on the retail side, where do you guys fall on those crossovers and big events? Like, does it actually lead to an increase in sales during a short period that is worth it? Does it generally bring in new readers that then stick around? Brian, I'd love to hear your thoughts first on this one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at this point in time, I think it was kind of like crossover mania, right? I mean, we had the Marvel DC stuff coming, the Marvel versus DC miniseries and Amalgam. And I mean, it was kind of a golden age of crossovers. And, and you know, when you kind of do that much product, it dilutes the impact, I think, of what you're trying to accomplish. Certainly there are exceptions. I mean, there, there were a bunch of those crossovers that were really fun, but I don't know if they really uh, necessarily add to sales per se, but... Again, it was a situation for us that... We never really saw a long lasting impact from that. I think also customers were getting very tired of them because it it was like clockwork. Okay, it's summer. Here comes another big crossover. Mm -hmm. You know, and a lot of my customers felt like it made them set aside the ongoing story so that they could do this. And so basically it was like taking a three month break from the regular stories. And it was pretty much a consistent sale for us. We really didn't see a drop off, but we certainly didn't see a gain either. Uh, that that makes sense. Yeah, I, I can see that. It's like, if you're already buying the book, it's not going to make you excited because you're already enjoying it for what it is. And then if you're new to it, will it get your attention or maybe it just won't get your attention at all because you, you don't care about the characters? Or... Hey, Adam, do you want to know the origin of Ego? Oh, yeah, let's hear. Well, I can't remember the exact issue that started. You you might recall this, Adam, but, but what happened is uh, Garab, comes downstairs and says to me and Pat, Todd wants to do a monthly column. And we're like, great. That sounds awesome. Let's give him some deadlines. And give me So, well, wait a minute. Basically he just wants to uh, talk to someone on the phone and then we'll just take down what he says and turn it into a column. <laughs> like, okay. So that was my job. So I would get on the phone with Todd and Todd would talk at length on whatever burning topic he wanted to go through. <laughs> and, and I would record the entire conversation. And then I would take that recording and, and try to turn it into a functional, cohesive editorial column. And, and then I would type it up and I would fax it over to them and then they would approve it, which generally happened. I, I think 
I can't I can't really remember a time where Todd would give any you know major feedback on anything because uh, I mean there it was everything he said there had to be some liberties involved in, in bridging some of the thoughts yeah. that that he had but that was the process for wow. for ego and so if there is any cohesion at all in this then uh th- that was kind of my doing you'll take to, the credit for that all right trying to, trying to <laughs> you know todd has a, obviously a lot of opinions and sometimes he would veer off into tangents that don't necessarily tie back into the central thread of what he was uh, trying to express so we did the best we could with it oh there it is peek behind the curtain that's awesome thank you for that i handed those reins off i think to to Scott Beatty at some point when he was on staff. Um, but I think for the first few years of ego, that was, uh, that was all me. <laughs> all right. Well, as we close out here, uh, Jim Lee previews some of these Barry Windsor Smith covers that he has commissioned for his wild storm rising crossover event. I will say that, you know, Barry Windsor Smith's versions of grifter and death flow and wildcats. They, they don't look, great uh he's definitely of a different era he's got a, he's got his distinct style but i think when you look at the wildcats characters you maybe don't need them interpreted quite that way i mean i will ask the fans but in further wildcats news we do hear that the cartoon series is not going to have a season two because they are moving forward with the gen 13 animated movie which they will have more creative control over but sadly jim lee will have no control over the movie actually getting an official release upon its completion a few years years later so that is too bad uh, but available on youtube for all of those of you who want to check it out now so getting into our final tally here in this issue jim lee has just three mentions todd doubles it with six and our running tally now our total as of issue 46 of wizard jim lee has 266 mentions todd mcfarland 280 so that sabbatical took a little bit of wind out of jim's sails but uh We'll see if he could reclaim it. Now, as we close out here, let's have just a few more laughs, gentlemen, with Turok's Top 10. What I'm going to say here is I'm actually, I'm not even going to incriminate you guys by making you read this because we normally will take turns reading through this. But just with the topic name alone, the top 10 ways the collapse of the Mexican economy has affected the comic book industry. You can imagine there might be some stuff that hasn't aged well over these years. <laughs> so I'm just going to leave it at that. I, 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 I skimmed through it things. and yeah, it definitely doesn't age well. Um, <laughs> I, I suspect the, the collapse of the Mexican economy economy probably in in the hey what could be our top 10 list on the bullpen page that to me screams doug goldstein coming up with that <laughs> idea because that seems to be something he would have his finger on a, on that particular pulse uh, certainly not anything i would necessarily have thought of <laughs> Yeah, this is not great. Yeah, uh, I was just gonna say I don't, I don't, I don't think we can, uh, we can dare to do this one. So. Yeah, I, I read, I read through it this morning and went, uh, no. <laughs> I, well, the thing is, that's the one part of the magazine I don't read until we record because I want the reaction to be fresh. <laughs> and like this one, I just read it right before, and I'm like, okay, no, 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 no. Well, gentlemen, I just I want to thank you so much uh, for being a part of this episode. This is kind of a, a dream scenario, right? Is going through an issue of Wizard Magazine with actual Wizard staff members by your side, giving you those little insights. And you certainly have dropped a lot, a lot of detail and fun behind the scenes 
scenes information with us. But you guys are up to a lot of things now that are different than what you were doing necessarily in 1995. So Brian, first off, why don't you tell us how is teaching your comic book course at UCLA going? That's going great. The last class of the semester is on Saturday, and I'm very excited about it. I've been invited back for the spring semester, so I'm very, very pleased that I haven't made anyone terribly mad. I'm enjoying the teaching. It's been going well. That's awesome. And uh, elsewhere, uh, where can people find you these days? Uh, I'm editing a, a whole bunch of things for a bunch of different companies, all of which, you know, I think the, the most product we put out so far has been Jeff Johns and Gary Frank's Geiger series, which the first volume came out two weeks ago, I think. So go to a store and pick that up. Uh, and now we're working on the follow-up to that. And in early 2022, we'll have a Geiger 80-page giant coming out full of tons of tons of fun goodies uh, and and other top talent in the business uh, contributing. Fantastic. That's awesome. And uh, hey, how about you over there, Sean? What are you up to these days? Well, you can find me at thenerdy.com and batmannews.com where I'm still covering pop culture and toys and all that good stuff. And uh, if you ever want to stroll down memory lane, I actually do still sell 80s and 90s toys on eBay under the username Splash Page, which was the name of my comic store. Yeah, and I actually just went and picked up something from Sean's store there. He's got a great selection. So just <laughs> it, check it, it out, shipped guys. out yesterday and there is a surprise for you on the back of the box. Oh, all right. Well, guys, again, thank you so much for joining us and thank you all for listening and checking out this issue of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Of course, you can reach us on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. Check out the YouTube page. Plenty of videos from years past there. We'll hope to get some new stuff to you in the new year but in the meantime keep your books bagged and boarded this has been a presentation of the retro network